welcome to episode 363 of the Microsoft Cloud IT Pro Podcast, recorded live on November 30th, 2023. This is a show about Microsoft 365 and Azure from the perspective of IT pros and end users, where we discuss a topic or recent news and how it relates to you. It's wintertime in the U.S., so this week we figured we'd talk about hibernation. Only instead of animals, it's a new feature coming to virtual machines. That's right, you can now hibernate some VMs to save a few bucks instead of deprovisioning them. We also discuss a feature going away as Microsoft has officially announced the end of SharePoint add-ins. Finally, as we're in this holiday season, we're once again raising money for Girls Who Code. Check out the link in the show notes to join us in our second annual campaign to support the organization. I know you don't watch football, but I watched Michigan beat Ohio State over the Thanksgiving weekend here in the U.S. and thoroughly enjoyed it. So I'm sorry to any Ohio State fans that listen to the podcast. But <laughs> you should let me know. I would have worn my sports ball <laughs> shirt today, but uh, yeah, no sports ball shirt. No sports ball. Well, we don't need to talk about sports ball. We can talk about other stuff today. Do you have one you want to start with? You highlighted some things. I've got some things. We have some Ignite-y stuff. We have some AI stuff that apparently is blown up on LinkedIn and everybody's been playing with now. Where should we start? <laughs> Mr. Scott? Yeah, let's do some uh, newsy stuff. I think, I, think okay. I have a couple. One of these is a pre-post during Ignite announcement. I, I don't even know when these things fall at this point anymore. It's all over the place for me. That being said, VM hibernation. Did you see this one? I did. Have seen it in the Azure portal. I haven't used it. I think this was Ignite because I think we like mentioned, hey, this is out there on the Ignite episode we just did, but we spent no time talking about it because I don't really remember much about it. Yeah. But hibernating virtual machines, this is not like before you could shut down and not deprovision, you could deprovision a virtual machine, whether you got build or not. Now we have a hibernating a virtual machine. Yeah. I think this is a good capability to bring forward. There's a couple dimensions here. One is you just need to save money on your compute. I Always. think all of us are in this mode. And I've certainly got to the model of more ephemeral compute and everything I do. Like I find myself constantly these days like spinning up and deleting Databricks clusters, Kubernetes clusters, like all the things. It's all become very ephemeral to me, even potentially things that should be living and be online more than they should be. So I'm fully on board with the servers, this cattle thing, and the ephemeral nature of compute to save money. And then, like you said, in the past, it's been shut down your virtual machines to save money or delete your virtual machine, delete your VM profile, which effectively shuts it down, but then maybe do something like retain the disks to keep it around so you still have the OS and data disks and things like that. So that's all well and good. But that is not the same as hibernation, which lets you not only shut the VM down to save money, but also suspend the memory for that virtual machine to disk so that when you come back from a hibernation event, just like you would in VMware, Hyper-V, or any other hypervisor that's out there, effectively your full kit comes back online just as was. And that's really what this capability is. This is fully deallocate your compute so that you're shutting down your VM to save money effectively. Like it's a deallocation. 
but it's an extra mode to deallocation that allows you to persist that virtual machine's memory and suspend it fully down to disk. So you retain not only the disks for your virtual machines, so things like your data disks and your OS disk, all that, you also retain the memory for the state that you were in. Again, this is just like, it's not some nifty new capability. This is in, I don't know, every hypervisor that's out there today. It's just, this is now a native Azure capability. It's a little wonky, I think, at least in this first iteration when it comes to things like support for what can be hibernated and what can't be hibernated. So that's in a couple dimensions. One is things like operating systems. So if you go and look, and and this is all in preview, it's not production, blah, blah, blah. That whole discla- that that whole disclaimer, but if you go and look at the operating systems that are supported, it's everything on the Windows side: Windows 10, Windows 11, Server 2019, Server 20, 2022, all that kind of stuff is there. That's all good. Linux is a little hairier. I think it's a little spottier. So there's Ubuntu and Debian. There's no support for RHEL today. I imagine. That's got to be on the roadmap someplace is bringing things like Red Hat Enterprise Linux over to that list of things. And I imagine, hey, it's preview. That all comes in due time as they iterate on the preview and uh, get ready to hit general availability, all that good kind of stuff. So the first one is, hey, go to go check the docs and see what's going on there. Does this work for what you needed to do with the operating systems that you have? And then the other piece of it is it's only supported on a couple of different virtual machine sizes and only up to, it has a a ceiling for the amount of RAM that's allocated to that VM size that it's going to let you actually go ahead and hibernate through. So it's DAS V5s, DADS V5s, DS V5s, and DDS V5s. Anything up to 32 gigs of RAM can be hibernated today. So if you happen to be running on something that says, say, goes to 64 gigs of RAM, well, sorry, that one can't be hibernated today. Again, I imagine that gets fixed over time as they get closer to GA. Okay. That's all, all ready to go there. Well, and I imagine that there's maybe some technical limitations there because it does say when you're looking through this too that when you hibernate a VM, it signals the VM's operating system to perform a suspend to disk action and the memory contents of the VM are stored in the OS disk. And what, these OS disks are only 128 gigs. I imagine once you start getting up into 64 gigs of RAM and 128 gigs of RAM, some of those. What if there's not enough room on the OS disk for your amount of memory? Or (laughs) even, I'm curious... It is a consideration. If you install apps, like some people, let's face it, you should add data disks and install your apps on the data disk. But if you're doing things like IIS and you have it sitting on the OS disk and your IIS logs start ramping up, like... I would be curious to try to fill up an OS disk and then try to hibernate one with 32 gigs of RAM with 10 gigs free on the OS disk and see what happens because I like to try to break stuff. (laughs) The other fun thing that happens here, and this is always, it's always fun to read between the lines to see like why they do these kinds of things. So why bring VM hibernation this late in the game? You would think, hey, it's been Hyper-V under the hood effectively 
for a long time now. That's a native capability. Like, why hold it back? <laughs> you and I, with our little virtual machines, like just going around onesie twosie, um, or even a customer that has a fleet of 10,000 VMs might not be the largest of the large that move the needle when it comes to how much it costs to actually run your service and put things forward. So if you look at this announcement and when it came out, you go and Google Bing DuckDuckGo for all the other compute services that rely on Azure Compute and deliver compute as a service to you. For example, DevBox. We've talked about DevBox in the past. Azure Virtual Desktop. We've talked about AVD in the past. At the same time that this announcement came out, <laughs> AVD, DevBox, and a bunch of these other ones, Citrix has a big deployment on top of Azure VMs. They all came out and said, hey, guess what? Our virtual desktop services all now support hibernation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I see why that's really there. It's maybe not there for us as mere mortals. Hey, it's a nice to have and it's a good consideration for us now that it is there. But I think for the most part, it's really there to support the desktop as a service provider kind of stuff. That's out there. And that could certainly help you in your environments. Like I know you do AVD deployments with your customers. Yep. And potentially that's something that they're interested in along the way. Yeah. I'm absolutely going to look at this. Again, one of our deployments, we would run into one of those VM sizes because we're doing a VM with 128 gigs of RAM. We're trying to cram a bunch of people on one rather than a bunch of small ones with a few people on it. But some of those smaller deployments, this is absolutely interesting. There's some times, too, I even use VMs for different client stuff where it would be nice to pause it and be able to come back with that memory state versus shut it down, lose everything, and <laughs> like stuff I'm working on. I have just stuff up in Visual Studio Code. Yeah, I save it. I can close it all down, reopen it all, but sometimes it's like, just suspend it. I very much want this for... The AVD instances that I get access to through my employer. Cause I, so one of the things that happens in the environment I work in is I can either do my work from employer provided device where it's all MDM'd and ready to go. Or in the cases where I'm not, I, I don't have access to an MDM device. Last week here in the US was Thanksgiving. Most of us were on vacation. Like I was up in the mountains completely disconnected. Like I didn't take anything other than my personal laptop and an iPad with me, neither of which are MDM'd. So if I had wanted or had a need to do anything at work that week, like there was an escalation and I got called in, I wouldn't have been able to do anything unless I could do it through AVD. And in those instances, I would very much want like my AVD instances to be suspendable as well. Cause once I'm in one of those sessions and I think it's one of the things like once I've started debugging a thing, like I've got Outlook open, I've got VS code open, I've got Edge open and I've got a bunch of very specifically like Custo queries or something like that up and running. Or I'm in like one of the internal telemetry portals or something. I just want all that stuff back. Especially when I get back to work mode and, and can log in again. I'm hoping they light it up for us. Yeah, I'm curious too. You mentioned why not have it right away since it's all on Hyper-V. But another aspect of this too that I'm curious about is I don't believe, does Hyper-V suspend to the OS disk or does it still keep stuff in memory? I feel like when I've used it before, and it's been a long time, to be fair, since I've done a Hyper-V on a physical VM or a physical machine, I feel like even though when I suspend it, that machine is still taking up the same amount of memory and it's actually storing the suspended memory in memory versus suspended memory 
copied and retrieved from the OS disk. I wonder if there's some additional technology updates that kind of went on on the back end to support that. There might be. I think it's an interesting choice, design choice, to go with hibernating by compressing that memory and putting it into the OS disk versus just sidecarring it and having it off to the side. And I don't know why that choice was made. Maybe there's some underlying limitation in it have to be both Windows and Linux, right? Because it's supported across the board. I don't know what drives those. Like, who knows? There's maybe some weird technical limitation. Maybe it's an, a cost-saving measure for customers. Like, it, it certainly takes away the variability in cost because in many cases, you're already paying a fixed size for your disks. Like, you're paying for what you provision, not what you use. So if you're already paying for 128 gigs, then it's a solid cost for you. It's easier for you to project and manage. And for you as a customer to control your kind of cogs, right? Your costs of services and what that looks like. I think that all potentially makes sense there and, it, and is a good like forcing function to, to get it over that way. But yeah, interesting design choice. I wonder if it has to do too with you don't know where that's going to spin back up, right? Because if you hibernate it and you're deprovisioning it from or deallocating resources, when you go to unhibernate it, wake it back up, it could spin up in an entirely different rack, an entirely different data center within the region. And if it's in a separate sidecar storage, you'd have to keep track of all that together. You would. There could be latency there. I imagine there's a way to pull it off, right? Especially in the world of managed disks, where Microsoft is hosting the storage account and the VHD for you. They know where all that stuff lives, and and they've already got that mapping in place. There's probably some weird trade-off in there between cost complexity, friction for customers, friction as a service provider on the Azure side just to light up that capability and keep it going and make sure that it's robust and it works the way you want it to, all that kind of stuff. So It's not taking a bunch of... I can see cost too. Because you talk about like 32 gigs of RAM, let's say you suspend 100,000 virtual machines. If you're spinning that up in some sidecar blob storage, that's going into your storage, Scott. And Yes. I imagine it... I, we don't think of it as much, but at that type of scale, that could be a lot of extra storage versus, to your point, just putting in an OS disk that's already been planned on, provisioned, you're paying for it. There's not extra storage that's being consumed on the side because of it. Yeah. It is. It's interesting. And that's a consideration for you as a customer. And I think Microsoft is a service provider, right? Like, how do you plan for capacity in that world and, and that level of variability? I don't know that you can in the current landscape and how things go. So, yeah, it makes sense if you peel back the curtain, but I don't know. If like you're a customer, I think you just need to know the way it works and understand that behavior versus understanding like, hey, here's like the underlying design decision behind it. Design decisions are just fascinating to me. <laughs> That's stuff that interests me. You should. I need to go get a job at Microsoft just so I can, yeah, see some design decisions. We make them every day. Trade-offs abound. Yeah, I wish everybody could go and... <laughs> I imagine especially like the folks who listen to this podcast, like going and working for a hyperscaler in one of the hyperscale services, because not every service is a hyperscale service either, right? Like there, there's some that are small, there's some that are medium, and there's some that are just like absolutely massive. Like I work in storage in Azure, and that's a massive part of it. Compute's a big part, networking's a big part. There's other smaller stuff out there, but if you can go and work for a big one, whew. <laughs> 
I, uh, let me tell you, I've seen some stuff. I am sure. I would, again, I would love stories. I don't know that I want stories bad enough to come work for Microsoft <laughs> yet, but we'll see. Do you feel overwhelmed by trying to manage your Office 365 environment? Are you facing unexpected issues that disrupt your company's productivity? Intelligent is here to help. Much like you take your car to the mechanic that has specialized knowledge on how to best keep your car running, Intelligent helps you with your Microsoft Cloud environment because that's their expertise. Intelligent keeps up with the latest updates in the Microsoft Cloud to help keep your business running smoothly and ahead of the curve. Whether you are a small organization with just a few users up to an organization of several thousand employees, they want to partner with you to implement and administer your Microsoft Cloud technology. Visit them at intelligent.com slash podcast. That's I-N-T-E-L-L-I-G-I-N-K dot com slash podcast for more information or to schedule a 30-minute call to get started with them today. Remember, Intelligent focuses on the Microsoft Cloud so you can focus on your business. So VM hibernation was mine. What do you got? What do I got? Man, I don't know which one to talk about. Let's talk about a small one first, just because this one's kind of interesting. It's not the new tab. Remember when we talked a while back about Microsoft is going to start transitioning everything to their own TLD under cloud.microsoft? Mm-hmm. The first one that I'm aware of is now out there. Your email, if you want to go look for organizational email. This is not personal accounts yet. Personal accounts are still going to be outlook.live.com. But if you're using Microsoft 365, you want to go check your email, you can now go to outlook.cloud.microsoft. And it does work. I did try it. I don't think mail.office.com redirects to the cloud version yet. But if you were looking forward to using .cloud.microsoft, go check out your Outlook. Interesting. I've been waiting to see when these are going to hit. And this one's kind of funny because it's Outlook all the things, but the, it does have a redirect in there for Outlook.live.com <laughs> and getting you over to your MSA kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have a ton of insight into the .microsoft TLD. Like, I would expect to see that used in more places over time, even outside like the M365 stack. I would think so. I think that's the plan. In Azure land, you see a lot of Azure.net kinds of things or some variation of Azure.net. And I'll do like Azure Star.net. So you've got like Azure websites.net, storage.azure.net, all those kinds of things exist out there because they have the Azure branding in them. So I don't know if. Someday you see a similar effort to come over to like dot Microsoft for that stuff. Be interesting if that ever happened. It would. Like if you'd have it Azure, I mean like the root portal. If you had Azure.cloud.microsoft or I'm thinking it's gonna start in the Microsoft 365 world. Like it wouldn't surprise me to start seeing OneDrive.cloud.microsoft or OneNote.cloud.microsoft. Some of them, those are probably also a little bit easier transition than maybe some of the other services. I think M365 is a good place to start with it because that's where I think people really need the, they don't need the cognitive load of remembering all the variations in URLs that maybe like we put up with on the admin side or the tooling side. Exactly. And if you know the product, if they can keep doing it with Outlook, Word, Excel, OneDrive, SharePoint, well, not SharePoint because that gets into the tenant level stuff, but yeah, just have all the products.cloud.microsoft could be 
Nice. That was the plan. I'm, I'm trying to remember. They didn't link in the article that you had. They didn't link back to the original announcement. But I believe the original announcement was like a bunch of those properties were come under the fold of the dot Microsoft TLD. The other interesting thing about that, and I, I think it's another good call out and driver for customers as they get ready for this, is there's lots of customers that are looking to disambiguate between their resources and Microsoft's resources. Say you go to download an asset from someplace, a lot of it today like might exist in a storage account. How do you know a storage account is a Microsoft storage account, like a Microsoft managed storage account? Like you bootstrap Office. Office does a bunch of stuff where it downloads assets from blob storage. And how do you disambiguate and know that the blob storage account for that Office thing is different than the one that's maybe in your tenant and your environment? Very hard to do, like when every storage account is blob.core.windows.net today. But potentially easier in the future if that's all masked between, oh, Microsoft assets are behind the dot Microsoft TLD. Go ahead and allow list those, and then maybe you do something with your own stuff on the side. Yeah. So for those customers who are looking for either data exfiltration controls, they're just looking for that additional click stop of control in their environment. Having a lockdown TLD that's unique to the service provider opens up a world of possibilities for you there as well. Makes the network admins happy and the security folks. Yeah, so we like keeping network admins and security folks happy. Some of us do. Some of us. Yeah, another news one. We should talk about this one because SharePoint is near and dear to both of our hearts, Scott. And I had another one along the lines of this too. There were two things that got retired. One of them being the SharePoint add-in retirement in Microsoft 365. To be clear, this is not anything with SharePoint on-prem. SharePoint server on-premises can still do SharePoint add-ins. We'll still have all of that. There are going to be some things that impact it in terms of SharePoint add-ins from the public marketplace. But SharePoint Online, SharePoint admins are going away. SharePoint Framework is the way forward, as I'm sure AC would have told you long ago. Years and years ago. But now you're going to be potentially, depending on how your deployments look like and, and what things look like in your environment, you are going to be forced into the framework path. And I think that's fine for some folks. Like when I see announcements like this, like one of the fun things to do is go out on like public forums, like Stack Overflow, Reddit, all that kind of stuff, and just see what people are latching on to and complaining about. And I saw a couple interesting ones on Redmond, on Redmond, on Reddit rather, where folks were, oh crap, we've developed solutions in-house years ago and they've just been running and we don't have access to the code we don't know what's going on and now that's all potentially going to break and have to go away for them or another one that I saw it was somebody who like whatever add-in they had built was it was helping admins function in the environment like administrators of their SharePoint tenancy and Whatever they were doing in that thing, they were all freaked out because they're like, well, we're all admins. We don't, know, we don't even remember who built this thing years and years ago, but like we depend on it every single day for our jobs. And now what do we do? It was. This is one of those that the writing has been on the wall of this for a while. They haven't been investing in the add-in framework for a while. But to your point, I'm in the same boat. I still go into clients and they're using old add-ins or old development things. And even... This could go down another path too. Like even people that have built stuff for the SharePoint framework that never go back and bother 
updating their solutions to the more recent version of the SharePoint framework. And in the meantime, Microsoft's making continual updates, continual improvements to SharePoint. And before they know it, they're running customizations built on the SharePoint framework that are three years old and stuff starts breaking. And then you have to go in and fix it. And there's not always a straightforward path from what I've seen with some of these clients that I've come into where it's, let's just go update this to the latest version. (laughs) Uh, So I think it's still some of that caution. There's no easy button for a migration here. If you don't have an equivalent in the SharePoint framework, and let's be honest, it might not be possible for you to do a straight one-to-one equivalent in the SharePoint framework without a heavy lift. So if you don't have that one-to-one option, there is no one-click migration, anything like that. Like You really do have to start rationalizing and thinking through what that looks like for you along the way. So I feel really bad for the customers who are relying on add-ins in the marketplace and the marketplace is going away as well and potentially those vendors that have been in the marketplace don't have equivalents in the SharePoint framework. If they do have equivalents, there's often not like a data migration path for you (laughs) depending on how that solution was originally built. So there's all sorts of kind of wonkiness that comes along the way with this. And then there's another impact Add-ins in the uh, SharePoint add-ins also relied on access control services, Azure Azure Access Control Services, ACS. ACS is also being retired at the same time and basically on the same timeline. So even if you weren't using SharePoint add-ins, but for some reason you were using ACS for something else in your environment, that's another thing that now you got to go figure out. And the replacement is Enter ID, which is not a straight one-to-one drop-in replacement either. Again, there's work here for you to do. I'm sympathetic to customers who can't come along for the ride, but at the same time, like this is part of the deal of cloud, is that it is ever-changing. I'm always telling my customers this. Okay, for all the time you're not spending managing servers, now you're spending time managing the service and managing to the service. And you should, like, it's not like you're spending less time on it. You're just spending time in different places. And I see a lot of customers that don't treat it that way. They go, oh, it's SaaS, it's evergreen, it's just going to work forever. I'm like, yeah, that works until you customize it. But as soon as you go off the beaten path, you need to plan for your own success there. Like, your own success is tied to the provider's success at that point. And you've got to rationalize that and figure out what it looks like for you. So I'm hoping after years and years, and maybe this will be another good example of it, those customers that haven't been planning for the future, you really do need to. And one of the things, I get it, customers do need add-ins. There's some benefit to add-ins. There's some good ones out there. I think this also speaks a little bit to, and not to tell you not to do development on SharePoint, but I think there's a lot of people, sometimes developers, can I make fun of developers, Scott? It's your show. Have fun. Every, okay, good that treat every challenge they run into with SharePoint as a, we need to fix it with development (laughs) versus first looking to, there's stuff you can do out of the box. What can we do out of the box? And I think at one particular client that we helped with this, it was probably a year or two ago now, they had 25 different custom solutions built for their SharePoint intranet. And they were ones where it wasn't an add-in 
but they were on an old version of the SharePoint framework and stuff just kept breaking. So it was, let's go in and update everything to the SharePoint framework or a new version. We started looking at it and we were able to cut down their the number of SharePoint web parts. It's not add-ins, but SharePoint framework customizations. We cut it down from whatever I said, 25, 26, maybe even 30, down to two and did everything else with the other 20, just doing out-of-the-box stuff. Maybe it wasn't quite as pretty. It wasn't quite what they had before, but it was pretty close and close enough that it wasn't worth trying to maintain all of this (laughs) custom development work over the course of time. And I think that's the other thing that jumps out to me at this is when you're looking at SharePoint, you don't have to develop solutions for everything. Go look at some of the, what can you do out of the box first? And only when you absolutely have to go build web parts, go do custom development, that type of stuff. That's been the case all along, right? You're paying Microsoft for SharePoint. You're not paying Microsoft to then go pay a bunch of developers or consultancy service providers, anything anything out there to then go ahead and give you what you need. Like you decided to invest in the platform in the first place for a certain reason. Make sure you maximize that benefit before you go down the not-so-beaten path. Yeah, and I don't think we said this was going away. I don't think we announced any timelines. We should probably let people know. So SharePoint add-ins. I'm not the one who announces the timelines. Microsoft is. Okay, so Microsoft announced the timelines. (laughs) We did not inform our listeners of the timelines. We just said it's going away. They are uninformed unless they read the article. (laughs) November 21st, or November 21st, November 1st of 2024. So a year from... When we're recording this, add-ins will stop working in new tenants. So if you go spin up a brand new tenant after November 1st of next year, 2024, ACS will no longer work and SharePoint add-ins will no longer work. SharePoint add-ins and ACS will stop working in current tenants as of April 2nd of 2026. So roughly two and a half years from now, I think that works out to, mm-hmm. right-ish. And then as of, I'm losing my timelines. So I think your next important one is July 1, 2024. Yes, that's what I missed. Which is when you will no longer be able to get new add-ins or, or you will not be no longer be able to purchase add-ins from the public marketplace. Well, actually, it's not very clear in the way they worded it. Uh, so it, vend- vendors can't add new add-ins to the marketplace? I don't know. I don't understand. Basically, if you're doing add-ins today, don't go buy any new ones. <laughs> like after today. <laughs> please, please, yeah, yes. yeah, please don't go buy any new ones. And then start coming up with your ramp-down plan. And I imagine for some of this, especially if you're on marketplace add-ins, you are going to have to wait for those vendors to announce their plans. And hopefully their plans can line up with the Microsoft timelines for all this stuff. Yep. And then that April 2nd, it was nice of them not to do this on April 1st. I wonder if that was intentional. (laughs) April 2nd, it's all going to go away. And they do say in here, there's not going to be an option to extend it. So unless Microsoft makes additional announcements, like April 2nd, it all shuts down and you're hosed if you haven't made that transition off. But you have two and a half years to do it. So all kinds of time, right, Scott? All kinds of time. I always love things like this because, again, there's all the knock-on effects that come in. So add-ins going away, ACS going away, 
There were multiple flavors of add-ins, like basically UI add-ins that you added that manipulated the UI. And then there were hosted add-ins, which were the ones that used ACS in the middle as an auth framework. Provider-hosted add-ins, I think officially is what they were called. But then those were hosted on their own units of compute and all that stuff that's out there. You got to go figure all that out as well. <laughs> like, what's all the other stuff running in my environment that was actually potentially tied to this add-in along the way? Whether it came from the marketplace, custom developed in your own tenant catalog, like whatever it happened to be. Right. And this is another interesting call out. They call it out towards the bottom of the ACS documentation. I don't know that it's in. Okay, they do have it in the SharePoint documentation too. For people that forget, Project Online is built on top of SharePoint. So this also applies to anything Project Online related because SharePoint add-ins are going away and could affect Project Online and ACS going away could also affect Project Online for any of those extensions that you built on top of SharePoint Online slash Project Online. I wonder what that means in context of what we talked about last week or the week before with the collapse, the unification of and all the things. So Project coming over to Planner and wasn't very clear what that looked like at the time. I wonder if some of that's driven by this too. It wouldn't surprise me if there's, yeah, if Project in and of itself, like not even custom stuff on top of Project, but to your point, like did Microsoft have some add-ins, some stuff that they're using in Project Online that is using the ACS and SharePoint added model and they were forced into this. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me. Or in agreement with Microsoft on it. I don't know if they were forced or arms twisted or if this was a mutual decision, but I can see some stuff being there too. Yeah. Oh, good times, Scott. The ever-changing cloud. <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up our Thursday recording? No. We have tomorrow yeah, too. That... We're going to record again tomorrow. Our, these holidays mess us up sometimes. We're going to chat again and like Less than 24 hours, so we'll talk more then. Yeah, we <laughs> save some stuff for that episode. All right, well, go enjoy the rest of your nice, cool Florida weather. There was frost on the roof the other morning, Scott. It felt so good outside. I know. I've broken out all my fluffy sweatshirts. and So it was 47 Fahrenheit two days ago. And so that was the day there was like frost outside in the morning. I was freezing that day. I haven't turned the heat on in my house yet. I'm one of those people who like, I wait until the very last minute. Good for you. We all just, we bundle up around here. So I broke out all my fluffy sweatshirts and did all that. And I was like, it was so cold. I had to go find like my little thin Burton gloves, (laughs) like my little underlayment gloves so I could take the dogs on a walk. And I, I did all that. And then the next day I woke up and it was still cold slept with the window open, all that kind of stuff. We broke out the extra big quilt and comforter yeah, and, we, and, and we did all that. And so I woke up and it was still cold. So I went over to the closet, got dressed in the morning, put on my big fluffy sweatshirt. And I walked around the house most of the day freezing because once it gets cold, I don't turn the heat on. So it stays cold inside the house too. And then I had to go to the grocery store and go shopping. And I walked outside and it was like 65 Fahrenheit. I was like, oh no, what happened? And I already walked out the door. I wasn't going to turn around and change my whole outfit for the day. But I went to the grocery store dressed up like I've got thick boots on and 
this big fluffy sweatshirt and I showed up at the grocery store and everybody's there in like shorts and a t-shirt and I'm like, mm, either they're tourists or yeah, they gotta be tourists. They're, I was gonna say tourists, like <laughs> their their blood's not thin enough yet. No, anybody in Florida, if it's under 70, Florida's bundle up like it's the middle of winter. <laughs> One, I don't know if it's because everybody in Florida's cold or if it's because everybody in Florida wants an excuse to wear all their warm clothes and like 70 is that threshold where you can put up with it once it drops under 70. Part of it was I did need the excuse to wear the clothes. So like my wife bought me a bunch of new flannel shirts and things before we went on vacation for Thanksgiving. She's like, we're going to the mountains. We're going to be in front of a fire. You need plaid and and flannel. And I was like, sure, whatever. Like it's cold up there, legitimately cold. So I came back and I washed everything. Now I've got all these flannel shirts. I'm like, when am I going to wear these down here? (laughs) No, but yeah. We are officially into hopefully cold season. We'll see how long it sticks. I don't think it's supposed to stay too long. We're actually headed down to Disney this weekend. And one of my kids was bummed out because it's supposed to be like 80 down in Disney. Yeah. It's a little south. I don't know about here. It's supposed to be up to 78 Friday. Fun thing about living in Florida, we have two seasons. We have summer and we have summer light. And we're like, so when I say we're making the transition to the cold season, we're making the transition to summer light. Maybe, kind of, sort of. Yes. And really, not even now. Like, it still gets into, yeah, the 80s in December. Yeah, we'll see. Usually, like, January, February, you start to hit, like, that cold snap. And when I say cold snap, it's, ooh, it's 60 degrees every day. Rough. And that's the high. It does get down. I've woken up and had to scrape my windshield in Florida. Every once in a while, you get a thin layer of ice. But yeah, Friday, tomorrow, Scott, high of 78. So don't put on all your warm clothes tomorrow because it's going to be a warm one-ish. All right. Noted. All right. Well, thanks. Now go enjoy your nice, fluffy, warm clothes for one more day before you have to go pack them all away for a couple days. And then you can get them out again by a week from now. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Ben. Talk to you later, Scott. If you enjoyed the podcast, go leave us a five-star rating in iTunes. It helps to get the word out so more IT pros can learn about Office 365 and Azure. If you have any questions you want us to address on the show or feedback about the show, feel free to reach out via our website, Twitter, or Facebook. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.